0: This episode of Firstline is sponsored by TrueLearn, an exam prep company best known for their smart banks that turn your weak areas into your strengths. I am so excited to partner with TrueLearn because it is the only company I trusted for Comlex Level 1 prep last year and Level 2 prep this year. For my listeners who are taking the USMLE, TrueLearn also has an amazing USMLE Smart Bank. Each TrueLearn Smart Bank practice question has detailed answer explanations and succinct bottom lines to get the big learning takeaway. TrueLearn includes first aid references for each question and an option to create tests based off of topics. So you can use TrueLearn to help prepare for your school's test during the year. Lastly, if you are in your third year like me, TrueLearn also offers smart banks for shelf exams. Go to truelearn.com and use one of my special discount codes for up to $35 off your new subscription. Special discount codes can be found in the episode description. TrueLearn is the first line solution to excelling on your your exam. My name is Aubrey Ann Jackson and this is First Line. I'm here to bridge the gap between sophisticated doctor talk and oversimplified patient education to bring listeners of all backgrounds together to discuss whole body health and wellness. Through an osteopathic lens, First Line covers tangible ways to improve your health, hot topics in healthcare, the journey to becoming a physician, mental health, relationships, and even philosophy, all while holistically addressing the whole person, body, mind, and spirit. Thanks for joining me for another episode. First Line is now available on a variety of platforms, including Spotify and Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Breaker, CastBox, Stitcher, Amazon and Audible, Overcast, Pocket Cast, Castro, Player FM, Podbean, TuneIn, Reason, and iHeartRadio. Please subscribe and follow wherever you listen to your podcasts. There are four pillars of health. The first one is nutrition, what you eat, your diet. The second one is exercise. The third one is stress management having stress-relieving activities, having some kind of outlet. And then the fourth one is sleep. And sleep is probably the one that is overlooked most. Having good sleep hygiene, getting enough sleep, getting good quality sleep. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. So biologically, your body deactivates your sympathetic nervous system, which is the part of your autonomic nervous system. That's the part that you don't have control over that specifically deals with the fight or flight response. And so when you deactivate this part of your nervous system, this also lowers cortisol and cortisol is your stress hormone produced by your adrenal glands. And during this time of sleep, during this time of deactivation of the sympathetic nervous system, this is when your body goes through its rest and repair processes. And this includes cell repair and even DNA repair, which is vital to the promotion of health. This is when your body repairs your mitochondria, and we all know mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cells, And this is really just the organelle, the part of the cell that deals with energy. And really is metabolism on a cellular basis. Sleep is also the time where we consolidate information for our long term memory. So if you're studying for a test, that's coming up maybe in a few months, such as boards or a final exam or anything like that, that longer-term memory is going to really be important. And so that's where sleep comes in as being super important in order to commit these memories to long-term. We know just how important sleep is with studies that look at sleep restriction. So the opposite, in order to learn what sleep actually does, let's see what happens when you're without it. So sleep restriction has been linked to things like altering the hormones associated with appetite and also increasing hunger and food intake. And if you're trying to lose weight or to just eat healthier and stay away from junk food and sweets and fast food, then... A lack of sleep is going to make this a lot harder because your hormones are working against you. Sleep restriction has also been associated with alterations in glucose metabolism. So if you're looking to prevent diabetes or prevent worsening of diabetes, sleep is vital. And when I see patients I always ask them how their sleep is doing if they are diabetic or pre-diabetic. And just overall, when it comes to sleep and diet, sleep restriction is associated with greater calorie intake compared to expenditure, which is how much you're exercising, how much you're moving your body, and just your general basic metabolic rate. If you're taking more in then you're expending that's going to lead to weight gain of course there is hormone interaction with that it's not a straight 300 calories in 300 calories out but on the whole lifestyles that have more on the diet side and less on the exercise and expenditure side leads to we gain an often metabolic syndrome, so you're probably also having elevated cholesterol and elevated glucose, predisposing you for a lot of different conditions. Sleep restriction has also been associated with, again, insulin resistance. So that is what causes diabetes type two, therefore also greater risk of things like cardiovascular disease. When you're not getting enough sleep, all of this piles together. If you're not sleeping well, you're probably not eating well, and you're setting yourself up at an increased risk of getting many different diseases. If you are not getting the number of hours of sleep you should, or not going to bed at a good time, or waking up at a good time, this alters your body's natural circadian rhythm, which then affects different hormone balances like melatonin if you're not following your circadian rhythm you're not going to create enough melatonin which is a sleep hormone that helps you sleep and it's also anti-inflammatory as well and a lot of people I know that struggle with sleep they start taking melatonin in pill form instead of focusing on helping their bodies Produce melatonin because your body naturally produces melatonin. That's why a lot of people like that as a drug because it is a natural hormone that your body already has. But why would you not first optimize your body's production before you start taking extra? So, there is a connection between sleep and different mental health disorders generalized anxiety disorder, as well as any other anxiety, can lead to poor sleep, especially the quality of your sleep. By this, I mean that it affects your REM cycles of sleep, which is that rapid eye movement sleep, which is the deepest sleep, and this is the stage of sleep in which dreams take place. Depression is also associated with sleep problems, and then if you don't get enough sleep, this can exacerbate a lot of the problems that we see in depression. So it can lead to a cycle of worsening sleep, worsening depression, worsening sleep. Whether you make a change in sleep or make a change with depression, it usually helps the other as well, but where the real magic happens is when you attack it from both fronts and you work on good sleep hygiene, then you also work on the depression, whether it's with counseling, therapy, medications, coping techniques, things like that. I've also more recently heard more about Sleep deprivation leading to increased risk of developing dementia especially with those getting less than 6 hours of sleep per night. You probably know that having a dysregulated circadian rhythm is going to affect your health and everyone should be working on taking steps to help restore your body's internal clock. Circadian rhythm works with light receptors in your eyes interacting with your body and keeping it in sync with nature. So circadian rhythm should line up with light and dark of day and night, but a lot of times when we have artificial light and when we stay inside during the mornings, we can kind of shift our circadian rhythm, so it's not in sync with sunrise and sunset anymore. And these light cycles are important because it determines releases of hormones such as melatonin and cortisol. Melatonin is the hormone that helps you sleep, and that increases around sunset Whereas cortisol kind of does the opposite. It keeps you awake. It's also known as the stress hormone. And those are usually highest in the morning around sunrise. And this provides you the boost of energy that you need to start your day. And then it kind of decreases and it becomes the lowest around midnight so that you can have restful sleep and melatonin takes over from there. Melatonin helps your body to rest so that you can repair your cells and other systems and also promote sleep. It's very common to have circadian rhythm disorder. And this just means that you have disrupted sleep patterns. Like I said, your body isn't exposed to natural light, whether you have more light during night or you don't have enough light during the day your circadian rhythm is off, your hormones are off. When I say artificial light, what's important there is the blue-violet wavelengths that come from our screens and from our light bulbs. And this causes hormone imbalances. It can also affect our blood sugar because cortisol is involved in blood sugar regulation. Circadian rhythm disorders can also affect your thyroid hormones and therefore also your metabolism. If you have too much cortisol, that's actually going to suppress your immune system functioning. Circadian rhythms can also affect your sex hormones, such as estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone, which can therefore also affect your ovulation and fertility. Having a disrupted circadian rhythm can also affect your mood as well, and if you have chronic disrupted circadian rhythm, you have an increased risk of depression as well. So if you're looking to restore your circadian rhythm and bring it back to how it's naturally supposed to be, you want to aim for seven to nine hours of sleep each night and this isn't necessarily the same as the time that you spend in bed. If you have something that tracks your sleep, whether it's a Fitbit, an Apple Watch, or just your phone under your pillow, try to use one of those sleep trackers. And really, you can just do it once or twice just to compare the amount of time you're spending in bed with the amount of time that it's actually tracking you as sleeping. You also want to go to bed at a regular time. Try to be very consistent with it. Also, I'm always a big advocate for exercise, but don't do too much of high-intensity exercise too late in the evening. I would probably say three hours before bedtime. Also, anytime you can practice stress reduction, that is going to help you across all realms of health in your body, mind, and spirit, but it is especially important when trying to help your sleep habits. So, anything you can do to decrease stress, whether it's taking frequent breaks during the day, having hobbies and things to look forward to, you also want to limit The amount of caffeine and alcohol you have, especially close to bedtime. Did you know that half of the caffeine you consume remains in your system 12 hours later? And it increases cortisol as well. So that means the coffee that you drink at 11 a.m. is still in your system when you go to bed at 11 p.m. I wouldn't recommend any caffeine within five hours of bedtime at the latest. I know so many people use alcohol as a way to fall asleep. It might appear to do that, but a lot of times that alcohol will prevent you from having the deepest stages of sleep and you might wake up more often during the night. Also, please know That a glass of wine you like to have to wind down at night might be disrupting your sleep and your sleep quality, and you might not even recognize that as the cause. If you usually do tend to have a drink before bedtime, I want to give you the challenge to try to cut that for one week and see how different you feel. See. If you're still waking up in the middle of the night, if you're having trouble falling asleep, and also try to journal and see how you feel in the morning too. It's very likely that you'll see a big difference. Try not to eat food that has high sugar content or drinks with high sugar content in the evening. And also try not to make dinner too late in the evening or too large of a meal, especially. I usually say, Don't eat within two hours of bedtime at the latest. Usually when you're snacking before bedtime, it's not really the healthiest options. So that might even help you with some of your other health goals as well. Also, you want to unplug as early as you can, but at the latest one hour before bedtime, try to put all your screens away, read a book, spend time with your family, something like that. To keep your cortisol response low, and cortisol is that stress hormone, you want to keep yourself satiated by having meals that are balanced with protein, fiber-containing carbs, so that means vegetables and whole grains, and good fats, good healthy fats like extra virgin olive oil. And you also want to make sure that you don't have too many blood sugar spikes, even if you don't have diabetes. This is still an issue. Keep your blood sugar right where it needs to be, right in the Goldilocks, just right, not too cold, not too hot, not too low, not too high. You may have heard it said before to eat breakfast like a queen, lunch like a princess, and dinner like a pauper, and that is because that pattern of eating most aligns with your body's natural rhythms with insulin resistance that increases later in the day. So you want to eat when your insulin resistance is low, which means insulin will be able to act appropriately with larger meals. So you want to have breakfast really be your biggest meal. You want lunch to be somewhere in between, like that Goldilocks, and then you want dinner to be on the lighter side. And I know this is so hard because the world that we live in, at least the culture in the United States, is that dinner is a social event and that's where we all come together for a meal whether it's with family whether it's with friends dinners usually that big meal that we have at the end of the day and what i will say to that is not to skip out on having those dinners because social support and interactions are super important but try to opt for more things like just loading it with good veggies or Try to have dinner a little bit earlier in the evening, so more around 4 or 5 o'clock if you can. If you get out of work at 5, have it right at 6 o'clock. It really does become a problem when we're eating these huge meals at 7, 8 o'clock, and then we also have some snacking after dinner too. That's where we get insulin resistance, no matter if you're obese or not, diabetic or not. So keep that in mind that it's not always calories in and calories out because hormones are involved as well. Again, I like to recommend to stop eating at the minimum two hours before bedtime. When you're sleeping, your digestion might be disrupted and you won't be able to break down all of what you need to. Of course, if you have any medical condition that requires you to eat closer to bedtime, I'm not saying to go against that. But in general, these are good guidelines to follow. So the foods you want to avoid during dinner time and especially after dinner time is those sugary foods, which are often the foods that we do snack on at night, unfortunately, and then starchy foods, which we also like, like our potato chips. So if you want to improve your sleep hygiene, and I think this applies to really everyone. I don't think anyone has perfect sleep hygiene. We can only really aspire to have better sleep hygiene. You've probably heard a lot of this before, but it helps to hear it again and again. I think it makes a huge difference, even if you just pick one thing that I say that kind of resonates with you and to work on, then you're moving in the right direction. And I think it is unrealistic for you to follow every single thing I'm going to say. So the first one is keeping the bedroom nice and dark and reducing noise as much as possible and keeping it cool. So if you don't have Good curtains in your bedroom, maybe that's a good investment for you. Just sleeping with a, a sleep mask can help as well. In the evening, you want to either wear blue light glasses or change the settings on your computer screen and your phone screen. So I know my computer, at least, have it set so that as soon as it's sunset, it turns on this more orange kind of hue, and it's a blue light filter because blue light keeps you awake. And so the idea here is that the blue light blocking filter will be kind of ease you into getting ready for bed. I'm always worried, like, is this going to make me sleepy and I'm not going to be able to stay awake to get all my work done? It really hasn't had that effect, but I do feel a little bit calm. It doesn't feel as intense to look at my computer screen. I do highly recommend that. I know with my computer, I'm able to modify how intense it is. Like I can have it at 100% filter and the screen is literally orange and I cannot read a thing. And then if I have it like 50%, I can barely tell that it has a filter on it at all. So you can fool around with it too. And I think phones have this too now. And that has been super helpful. Uh, that's, That's one thing that technology has given us. Speaking of computers and cell phones... Reducing your screen time, because all screens emit at least a little bit of blue light, and blue light is an issue because it does disrupt your body's own production of melatonin. So reducing your screen time reduces the blue light and reduces the reduction of melatonin, so therefore screen time has a negative effect on melatonin, so you want to reduce your time. So next is turning the lights down as the sun goes down. Our circadian rhythm is designed so that when the sun goes down, we should also be winding down as well for sleep. And we should probably go to bed with the sun and wake up with the sun a few hours, give or take. So your your eyes adjust to light and knows when it's day and when it's night. The problem is that in this day and age, we have light stimulus almost 24-7 unless we are asleep. So there's not that gradual setting of the sun that our ancestors were used to seeing and winding down their day. I always like to keep the blinds open so that natural light shines in. I try to have the lights off usually and then just use the natural light. And I like to sit outside when I can. It's really good to get exposure to natural light during the day. And then the problem is when we can get a lot of light exposure all day, but then around sunset, we start using artificial light and it's often even brighter than natural light is. So now our bodies might even think that it's the start of a day, if not um, still daytime. So the trick here, and this is something I need to work on as well, is to try to use minimum lighting for whatever activity you're doing. Not having all of your ceiling lights on, Okay, here are some hacks to help you have a better night's sleep. Create a routine for bedtime. So when you have a routine, when you have certain habits that you have on a daily basis, it causes your body and your mind to associate these habits with sleep. So your body realizes that sleep is coming. So what should a bedtime routine involve? Well, you can definitely do a skincare routine. So if you use any kind of night cream, um, even if you're just washing your face, uh, you can also read before bed, which I highly recommend. Even reading just 20 minutes before bed is a really good habit to have. You can also do something like prayer. If you are not religious, uh, meditation may be helpful um, for anyone just a way to close your eyes and kind of relax to practice mindfulness. You can do a gratitude list. I usually like to do these in the morning, but you can also do it at night too. Then you can also journal if that is something that you do. You want to aim for at least a half hour of sunlight every day, preferably in the morning, first thing when you wake up. Also kind of corresponds to the half hour that's encouraged of daily activity a day. So you can kill two birds with one stone by going on a morning walk or a morning jog. And this sunlight in the morning um, helps our brain release cortisol, um, which is the hormone that increases upon awakening. And this is really important for our circadian rhythm to um, kind of encourage that cortisol release. You can also kind of play some soothing music to kind of get you in the mood to sleep. And as far as the screens go, if possible, try to either put your phone in another room if you have another way of having an alarm. But if you do use your phone as your alarm, I would say at at the very least, keep it more than an arm's length away so that you're not tempted to grab it the second that you realize you're having trouble falling asleep. Because I, I know we think that when we can't sleep, if we just go on our phone for a few minutes, it will make us sleepy. Well, it probably works the opposite. It probably stimulates our minds a little bit more and keeps us awake, especially the bright light of a phone. So it's much better to avoid that temptation, kind of just relax your mind. You can send me a voice message using the Anchor app if you want to send me a comment, ask a question, or share any topic ideas that you want for an upcoming episode. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, I would really appreciate it if you take some time, just a minute of your time, to write a review. Hopefully it's five stars, but I really like honest reviews. I'm looking forward to hearing from you. so much for listening again i'm on instagram at first line podcast also on facebook facebook.com slash first line podcast you can reach out for any questions comments suggestions feedback i'd love to hear from you thanks again